right, everyone. Episode 118 with Jason Lean Arts is about to start. He is one of the only people on this show that has as a complicated last name as I do. So it was interesting learning how to pronounce his name properly, and I probably asked him a billion times to get it right. But this episode is plain awesome. We dive into a lot of different topics, and we get pretty deep and a little bit dark with Jason's drug addiction, and I was really fortunate for him to actually open up and talk about that experience, and I don't want to ruin anything else. We're just going to get right into the episode, and here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me is the amazing Jason Leanart. Say hello. Hi there. Perfect. So, I always like to start the show to break the ice for my audience and ask my guests, what do you got planned for the weekend? Let's see. This weekend, I, I don't know when the show is ultimately going to come out, but this weekend is St. Patrick's Day weekend. Yeah. Um, we have my, my son... I have a, an, an older boy from my first marriage named Jackson, and this is a weekend that we have him. And then I have a little boy uh, from my wife, Marissa, um, and he's uh, he's seven months old. So I have a 10-year-old and a seven-month-old, and so we're just going to be kind of hanging out, doing some very low-key St. Patty's Day stuff this weekend. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, too. And like when my clients ask me, like, oh, are you doing anything for it? I'm like... Yeah, I'm going to sit down and drink six Guinness beers to myself. <laughs> like that's, that's my plan, yeah. Um, so yeah, for the audience who don't know who you are, can you kind of start with you know who you are, what you do, and how did you first get into this industry? Yeah, I'm, I'll give the very, very much Reader's Digest version sure. first. Uh, so I am the owner of Revolution Fitness and Therapy. It's a little fitness studio in Stowe, Ohio. And I also have a podcast called Revolutionary You, which I'm the host of, uh, co-host a little show called Someone Has to Say It with my buddy Blake. And I have a book that I am certain I will never make my money back on called The Revolution Is You because that is one of those failed experiments in I wonder what it would take for me to actually do this. And uh, so that was a lesson learned. But um, but yeah, I mean that's that's it. As I mentioned, I'm father to two beautiful boys and have a, a stunning wife. And and yeah, that's uh that's the short answer. Nice. So there's a different kind of ways that I want to get into this, but um, I think I would want to start is ask you how like at what point in your career did you decide to open up your gym? Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So let's let's start there. So I. <laughs> I, I, yeah, there's definitely no no easy way to answer this. So for for a lot of my upbringing, I was pretty much certain that I was going to be a, a musician. I thought I was going to just rule the world with a guitar and a microphone, and that's you couldn't convince me otherwise. And my father, who had a far more sensible mind than I did at the time, said, you know. When you go to college, uh, you're really going to need some kind of plan B. So I really want you to think about that. I don't want you to just, you know, just uproot yourself and, and go live on the street somewhere in a metropolitan area. So I initially went to school for uh, a music business. And there was something about the music industry that really didn't sit very well with me because I think my 
my lifestyle. I wanted nicer things than what being a musician could actually afford me, unless, of course, you're someone who sells out arenas. And so along the way, I'm working in retail because I've got to find some way to pay the bills and all that stuff. And um, I realized that music was not going to do for me what I wanted to, but I didn't know how to get out of retail. So I spent many, 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 many years, uh, about 16 years total in retail, about 13 of which in management. I've sold just about everything under the sun, shy of cars and furniture. And um, I sort of fell into fitness somewhat accidentally. And because I know that we've spoken a little bit about this offline, I know we'll kind of talk about some other avenues that led to fitness, but fitness was mostly accidental for me. And I had an opportunity after my marriage ended with my my oldest son's uh, mother, where I had really an open door to do something like this. So I'd gotten certified as a personal trainer because I liked working out, I liked helping people, and I had an opportunity to basically you know do this uh, out of my own pocket. And so that's kind of where it started. And so you fast forward about nine years, and I have since expanded my business twice. Uh, so we we just moved into the location that we're at right now um, just before Thanksgiving of last year. So it's it's not a short answer, but that's kind of how it went. Nice. Now, does your music background at all influence the way your gym runs? I'm kind of curious to see what kind of music you choose for all your clients to listen to. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I am sometimes kind of envious of, I, I don't know if you follow people like Joe DeFranco or Jay Ferrugia mm -hmm. or people like that, but it yeah. sounds like they tend to play a little bit more of the music that I like to listen to when I work out. So, you know, when you when you work with a pretty wide range of demographics, everyone from, you know, early 20s to, say, mid-70s and everything in between, not every Everybody wants to hear things like Rage Against the Machine or Ghostface Killer and stuff like that. So I, uh, I, I have to kind of change the music throughout the day. So it, if if you were a fly on the wall, we probably listen to everything from just some EDM to some classic rock to some 2000s pop. And then if I've got the right demographic in here at one point in time, then we might do some some 90s hip hop and that kind of thing. So it really I have to base it on who's here at that point in time. No, fair enough, because like at my gym, it's really interesting because like I when I joined this new gym that I'm at right now, the first thing I noticed was the music and it's like just blaring loud rap music. And <laughs> we have over 200 members and, you know, there's no like censorship. There's like every F word, every like swear word you can think of always pops up. And I was like, just waiting for like someone to complain, but no one complains. And I started asking all the other coaches who've been there before me. And I'm like, has anyone complained about, you know, the music? They're like, no, they love it. So you'll see like, <laughs> like a mom in her forties that has like no business listening to like, I don't know, Migos and any other rap artist you can think of. And like, I've even asked some of the members, I'm like, oh, what do you think of the music? She's like, this is the best thing ever. I love it. I, lo I love all the swearing. And I'm like, that's awesome. So I don't know. Like, I just love seeing different gyms, like, just play different types of music. Because I know, like, somewhere like the Eric Cressy, they probably still play the same, like, Metallica record over and over again with their guys. But, yeah, that's just a whole other story. Yeah, it's I, I'll say this, you know, I'm very, very opinionated about music because I'm very passionate about it. And I, I th like to think that I've got a fairly wide 
wide palette in terms of what I normally listen to. But the stuff that I play throughout the the span of a day, I tend to tune out and forget that it's on. So, you know, I've got clients that, you know, they, they've been here a while and they're pretty open people and also, you know, somewhat opinionated. And, you know, you get on like a classic rock station and a Pink Floyd song comes on, you've got five minutes of instrumental. People are like, what is, what is that? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's Shine On You Crazy Diamond. That doesn't, you don't even hear the first vocal till you're like seven minutes in. So it's, uh, yeah, people have no problem around here saying, yeah, can you change that? <laughs> nice. Uh, so the next thing I kind of want to get into is your story, how you got into the fitness industry at first, where you're like, okay, I'm going to become a personal trainer. This is my calling. How did you get to that point? Yeah. Okay. So this is where the story becomes yeah. a little bit more colorful and, and somewhat convoluted. And I'll, I'll give this caveat when I start to get into this, which is when I start to talk about these kind of things, it's in no way, shape or form meant to glorify any of these things. It's just the way that my life went. So when I went to college, I was going through a lot of things personally that I just didn't really know how to cope with. So I went through like a, a bad split in the band that I was in and broke up with the girlfriend that I was with, who I was crazy about at the time. And it just really kind of turned me upside down. And I didn't really know how to handle any of it. So I went to the doctor because I started to kind of associate feelings of being depressed. And the doctor put me on Prozac. And Prozac was really not the right thing for me because it actually made me more depressed. And it started to kind of transition into more feelings of wanting to uh, be suicidal. And so the, the term for that is suicidal ideation, where you start to kind of threaten and have these thoughts of being suicidal. And, and then, you know, had episodes of actually acting out on it and attempting suicide. So I went through a span of several hospitalizations uh, when I was still in college, where I just couldn't wrap my head around what was going on. And the doctors kept changing up all of my medications and all these different things. And there just didn't really seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel for me. So it got to a point where I was taking several medications a day because, you know, I would be taking, say, one antidepressant and I would have a side effect to it. So then I would be on a medication for that side effect. And then I'd be on a mood stabilizer and I'd have a side effect to that. So then I'd be on another medication for that side effect. And you can sort of see how this becomes really muddy. And as a person, basically what it did for me is it just sort of shut me down. I didn't have any highs or lows. I was basically just indifferent to what was happening around me. And I just kind of got in with a certain crowd at school where it was like, you know what, if I'm going to be in this kind of haze, I might as well feel good doing it. So that's where the street drugs started to kind of transition into my life. And at that point, I was essentially just a walking zombie. Um, my, my father happened to be on a, on a flight one day and was sitting next to a pharmacist and was just kind of running through these things with the pharmacist and, and said, you know, my son is is taking all of these different pharmaceuticals because the doctors have said that he's got this kind of depression. He's going through these different things and he's running off this list and these dosages and the pharmacist just stops him in mid sentences and says, I, I don't mean to ask this and come across the wrong way, but how is your son alive? Because he's at a toxic level of medication, he should be dead. And my dad, you know, rerouted his plans and came to where I was and said, we're getting you away from this doctor. We need to get you in with somebody else. And it just, it was just a huge, huge mess. So it ended up, I had to drop out of school, move back to Ohio because I'd been in school in Tennessee and try to get me some better help. 
By the end of that year, I was hospitalized again and finally got in with another doctor who said, okay, listen, you don't have the depression that all these people are saying that you have. You don't need to be on any medications at all. You just need to talk to somebody. You need to have an outlet that you can you know, vent to and all these different things. And the doctor knew that I was starting to get into street drugs and obviously he didn't advocate for them, but he did say, we need to wean you off of these other things. So at that point in time, the rave scene was becoming kind of big in the US. And I had, a, you know, friends who were part of that scene and going to all these parties and all that stuff. So, you know, they say that weed is the gateway drug. And, you know, a lot of people will say, no, 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 that's not true. But it actually was that way for me. Weed was the, the gateway drug because it opened up the door for so many other things. And so starting in 1996, which is when the majority of these things all happened, uh, is what started basically a 10 year uh, drug addiction. And so 1996 being the starting point, around 1999, um, I remember being on basically a cocktail of drugs one evening, and I made the mistake of walking into a bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror, and that reflection was not very appealing. And I thought, okay, I need to do something with this because this is a hot mess. And I thought, okay, well, I'll start working out. And I've always been a small framed guy. You know, I wasn't athletic growing up. I wasn't particularly good at any sports. Um, I've pretty much always been underweight and undersized. And uh, so started lifting weights in 1989 and really liked it. But I was the kind of guy that, you know, I remember getting pinned under a, a barbell when I was trying to bench press because my ego got, you know, got ahead of me. And so it just took some t time to start to learn what could my body do and what was I capable of. And I've been known to say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of that slow learner. So, you know, I started lifting weights first and then I started eating a little bit better. And then lo and behold, you know, in 2006, I said, okay, maybe I need to stop doing the drugs now because life is not getting better despite all the drugs that I've been doing. And so uh, 2006 is when I cleaned up and I got a part-time job at a gym. I was, I was managing a retail facility and I got a part-time job at a gym because basically I just wanted to be able to train for free. And while I was there, spoke to one of the head trainers and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm already giving fitness advice. So what, what does it take to be a personal trainer? And he said, well, you know, I, I recommend a couple of these organizations. These are good places to start. And I was finishing up my degree in business management. So I thought, okay, well, I'll have the degree in that and I'll get certified as a personal trainer and I'll just see where it goes. So at the end of 2007 is when I got certified. And, um, and that's kind of what started, you know, the, the transition into the fitness industry. I, I left retail, got my degree, and as a as the result of losing a couple of family members that, who had passed away, I was gifted with some rental property in my hometown uh, in Tennessee. And I am not uh, I'm not a handy guy, so I wasn't going to be the best person to fix these properties and make sure they're rented out and all that other stuff. So essentially, I did a fire sale, sold off all the properties. This was right after the economy took a dive in the U.S. in 2000, uh, 2008. And with what was left from that money, I paid off the majority of my debt and then opened up my business with what was left. So by the time I opened my doors, um, I was flat broke and I didn't know anybody, but I owned all of my equipment. So that's where it started. Okay, so first of all, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I totally unloaded on you. <laughs> I know. Um, I want to like thank you for sharing that because I, I can only imagine kind of like just even talking about it probably brought up some past feelings. So just thank you. You're 
freaking brave. Um, and the other thing I wanted to like get into first is like when you first got to see that first doctor that prescribed you uh, drugs, like what advice would you have for people out there that are, you know, maybe seeking out, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists? Like what are some things that you learned throughout the years going to different doctors and taking prescription meds, what people should look out for? I don't know that I'm the best person to answer that, and sure. I'll tell you why. And I, I I hate to do a like a shameless self plug here, but it, it comes from a good place. Um, I did a show uh, on on my show with Georgie Fear, who I'm sure you know. And Georgie and I both talk about our paths into the fitness industry through depression. And you know, you've already heard my side of the story, being the person who uh, got to a point where he was very heavily medicated to being not on medication at all. And with Georgie, uh, she came from a, a place where she was medicated, tried to get off of medication, and realized I do much better if I'm on something. So this really boils down to, I, I hate to say personal preference, but you do need to have a support system around you and people who you trust people who are uh, you know, actively concerned about your well-being who can say to you, hey, listen, before you started this medication, this is what life was like with you. And now that you're on it, it's this way. And that's either good or it's bad. And you need to be able to kind of take that information and step outside of it. And, you know, it took me and, and this is where it's kind of scary to admit these things. That year, I remember, uh, my gosh, my father even made a list of it at one point. I I took no fewer than 20 different medications in one year. And I went through no fewer than five different psychiatrists before I got to the one person who said, this is not what you need. I would hate that anybody else would have to go through that, but it's what I had to go through. So unfortunately, when you start to get into medications that alter the way your brain functions, um, you know, you'd love to say that the first medication you take and the first doctor you see, it's all a home run, but it, it might not be. It may just take a little bit of trial and error and some honesty with your circumstances to say, I think I need to try something else or a different dosage or a different doctor. Yeah, see, that's the tough thing is like if you're, you know, looking to seek out mental help and you go see that first doctor and you just have this like trust that they're there for your best interest and they're going to fix everything and then it turns out that they are not the best and maybe some people don't even go seek out another opinion. Do you like, I don't know if you can answer this, but you know, if someone was looking to get a psychiatrist or psychologist, like, is there any char characteristics of that one person that told you you need to be off these things that they should look out for? Um, I, I really don't know. Yeah. You know, it's it's like a lot of other things. And, you know, I'll, I'll kind of, uh, you know, dial the hopefully the tone of the conversation back just a little bit because I know we got really heavy really fast. Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's hard not to when you start to look at some of these things. But. You know, you start with somebody that you trust, say it's your primary care physician, and you go to them and you say, you know, this is what I'm feeling. Who do you recommend? And, you know, if you trust that doctor, and it could be, some, you know, for, for women, it could be your OB. It could be, oh my gosh, it could be a dermatologist. You know, just I'm dealing with these things. I trust you as a healthcare professional. Who do you recommend I go see? And normally, if it's someone that you trust, then they can get you 
uh, in with somebody who they trust. And doctors are no different than than personal trainers. You know, uh, you know just as well as I do that if somebody says I need to go see a chiropractor, you know the right chiropractor to refer out to, or physical therapist, or dietitian, or whatnot. So the same principles apply. Um, you just have to be, like I said, very flexible and understanding that the, the the plan A, that first plan that you get, may not be the one that solves all the problems. No, that makes sense. And I think this would go well into our next question that Sumi actually posted on Facebook. And she asks, uh, as a former addict, can you ask him how he feels about people comparing sugar addiction to drug addiction? How did he work on overcoming his own addiction? What sort of work was the most transformative? Is this something he needs to work on every day or does it become ingrained like a habit? Well, shout out to Sumi for like <laughs> yeah. the, that, that was like four questions I in know. one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, so I'll try to, you know, I'll, I'll try to answer all those. You may have to refresh me on some of them, sure, but I'll start yeah. with that first one, the, you know, the difference between say sugar or food addiction versus drug addiction. I think there's similarities. You know, I, I love a good cookie. And if you put a plate full of cookies here next to me, that's a, that's a, a type that I really like and not like chips ahoy, um, I'll devour them. Like I, I have no self-control. Um, that's more, I think, just because I like them. You know what I mean? Those people who might be listening right now that have ever done cocaine know that cocaine is a vastly different experience than cookies. And that's not, you know, giving invitation for those of you who need, you know, to compare to go out and try cocaine. Um, when, and again, trying not to glorify this at all, when you have cocaine, there is no end in sight. So if the supply is there, you will do it and do it and do it because the pain, and I'll, I'll say that term kind of generally, the pain of coming down from that high is awful. It's awful. And the pain of you know plummeting from a sugar rush, not awful. It just makes you tired. You know what I mean? So I think there's similarities. I think that you know many people have things that are triggers that they don't know how to control. But I don't get really hung up when people say, oh, well, you know, uh, people say that when you eat, you know, high fructose corn syrup, that it lights off the same sensors in the brain as cocaine. I, I don't I don't agree with that at all. Um, similarities can be what they are, but you can't say that's apples to apples. OK, fair enough. And the the, the second part, <laughs> I'll try to hammer them <laughs> yeah, out yeah, one yeah. at a time. <laughs> So it's, 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 I think one of the questions was, uh, you know, what, what was transformative? Yeah, and how, um, how did you work on overcoming your own addiction? Sure. Um, so I went through several stages with, with drug addiction. So I'll kind of come back to that timeline again. Um, in 1996 is when it started. In 1998, I went to rehab. That was my last hospitalization was going to rehab in 98. And... Um, even going to rehab, it didn't make me feel like I had a problem, even though clearly I did. Like I, you know, this was becoming such a part of my life, but I couldn't, I saw people who really couldn't cope with life. And I thought, well, I'm really functional. You know what I mean? Like I can hold down a job and I can do this. And, you know, this person over here, they're like drooling on themselves. That's not me. You know, and I couldn't, couldn't take that introspective look. I did get to a point where, because I'd worked up my tolerance so high to the um, copious amounts 
of drugs that I could do in the span of an evening that I recall being up one night with some friends. We had been partying at, at a friend's house, and I remember sitting outside watching the sun come up, and the only way I've ever been able to describe, to describe this is I felt like my brain was pulsing. And I thought, okay, that's not a feeling that I've felt before, and I'm not really sure that I need to keep chasing the rabbit down that hole. So I started to kind of filter some drugs out of the system because I thought, okay, I, I don't know if I really need to keep pushing that. But the I guess kind of the strange thing about it was by the time I stopped doing drugs, by the time 2006 came around and I cleaned up completely, I was smoking weed all day long uh, from the moment I got up I'd get high before I went to work. I would have a break from work. I'd get high again. Get home from work. I'd be high until I fell asleep. And on the weekends, if we had cocaine around, there was cocaine. And so even though I wasn't doing as many types of drugs, I was still doing way too much. And I was at the point where there was no life unless I was high throughout you know, the span of a day. And I got to a point where I made pretty good money, but I couldn't pay my bills. And it didn't make sense to me. I thought, wait a second, how is it that I've, you know, I've got money for drugs, but I can't pay my mortgage? And I had started to isolate myself from so many people uh, that I thought, okay, I'm doing drugs by myself. I can't seem to go a single day without doing drugs or having something in my system. I think 10 years is long enough. I think I've, I've, I've hit my limit. And, uh, and so that was really the turning point for me. Um, even though I saw lots of bad things happen to other people, not so many bad things happened to me. And I think that probably kept me in it longer than I should have been. Um, but, you know, I, I paid a price. I burned uh, a lot of friendships, a lot of rela relationships. Um, I pretty much ruined, um, you know, my, my first marriage uh, because of just all the things that had happened during that time of doing drugs and just a lot of the after effects of just not really knowing what kind of person I was once I cleaned up and still having that relationship to look at. Okay. And I think the last thing that she was asking is like, um, is there something that he needs to work on every day or does it come, or does it become ingrained like a habit? Yeah. So this is something that I actually, um, I had done a show with Heather Robertson and also with Darko Bodich and had kind of brought this up in a couple different ways. So I've been clean now for 12 years and I don't think about drugs every day. But I think about drugs often, often enough that I have to be mindful of them. And maybe I'll kind of give this as an example because this is certainly a little bit more socially acceptable than, you know, than my background, which is alcohol. So when my wife, Marissa, and I started dating, uh, we would go out and we'd have a drink or whatnot. And when my father was getting sick, my father passed away from cancer in 2011, but when he was getting sick, um, I was going through a lot emotionally at that time. And I remember being out with Marissa, I you know, ordered a beer, took a sip of it, and I said, that's it, I'm done, I don't, I don't need to drink anymore. And I sobered up and I didn't have a drop of alcohol for four years. And when I started drinking again, it was when Marissa and I were on our honeymoon and I thought, okay, I, I, I think I'm okay to have this back in my life. Even to this day, I am a one and done when it comes to alcohol. I drink one beer, I have one glass of bourbon, whatever it is, and it's just the one. And what I notice is, you know, when you get that initial buzz from your drink, there's that part of my mind that says, hmm, like I like this feeling. Maybe we should chase this a little bit. 
and I have to keep it at bay because I know that moderation is not always my best friend. And so for me, it's easier to have the the cold, hard rule that I'm going to have one drink and then at one drink, it's over. So even though I've been clean for 12 years, there is that addict part of me that says you have to watch certain things. Um, otherwise, they will get the best of you because this is that part of you that's actually uh, weak. So so I just have to be mindful. And, uh, and, you know, where the addictions used to be more along the lines of the drugs and the alcohol and just whatever I had at my um, – you know, within my grasp. Now it's things that, you know, I'm addicted to buying books and I'm addicted to shopping on Amazon and, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, harmless in comparison, but still things where I noticed that uh, I just have to be mindful of that, that dopamine hit that I'm looking for. No, that makes a lot of sense because I remember I used to train this guy and when I got to know him, he was also um, clean for, I think it was like 15 years and his whole thing was that when he was in his 20s, he had a really high-paying job. So all he did was drink and do drugs, like, every single day. And then uh, his thing was that at the end of every night, he would just go looking out for fights. And his turning point was he woke up literally, like, cliche, in the gutter, bloody, broken nose from a fight that he couldn't even remember. And he's like, fuck, I need to stop this. And then from that day, he never you know, took a sip of alcohol, never did drugs. And he was telling me that even if he smelt alcohol in a restaurant, he had to leave because he knew that he had no self-control over it. And it's just crazy to hear stories like that and little things like that could just trigger someone to be like, fuck, all this work for nothing. Well, and it's interesting that you're bring that up. I, as I mentioned before, you know, I saw really bad things happen to really good people when I was going through all that stuff. And none of it was enough to make me go, Hey, dumbass, like maybe you need to stop, mm -hmm. uh, because I was too lost in myself. Um, and I just, I, you know, for lack of a better term, I just, I guess I just kind of thought that I was invincible to it, um, and, and immune to it. But when what's interesting about the gentleman that you just referenced was when I did sober up, in the time that, you know, that I've been with Marissa, if Marissa would say, you know, open up a, you know, bottle of wine and, and, you know, pour herself a glass, if I smelled it, it would turn my stomach. And I'm like, oh, I just, I, you know, I got to get away. So, you know, I was able to kind of get past that, but it's just, you know, it's, it's weird when you remove yourself from those uh, environmental triggers, how, how your body and your mind, you know, change as well. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully this question will kind of bring us out of this <laughs> dark place. But, you know, now looking back of what you went through, like, is there any things that you picked up that now you kind of pass on to the clients that you talk to every day to kind of get them through ruts in their lives at all? Yeah, it's I, and I, I like this. I think this is a good place to go. You know, when you when I think about clients who come to me, uh, I'll, I try to use this example somewhat loosely. But you know, if I have an individual that's that's coming to me that needs to lose 50 pounds, they're they're kind of in the dumps. You know what I mean? They they don't feel good about themselves. Maybe their their joints ache. Maybe their their sex life is in the you know it's it's in the gutter. Whatever whatever it is, but they're not they're not in prime condition. I don't train elite athletes. So it's 
that initial consultation with them is I'm trying to figure out, okay, have you hit your rock bottom? Like, is this really the place where you're going to start to make the changes that you want to make? Because as you well know, it, it goes beyond a, a meal plan and it goes beyond, you know, counting out your macros and all that stuff. So I, I don't expect other people to know what it's like to be a drug addict, but I do know what it's like to be self-destructive. And I do know what it's like to not have a lot of self-worth and feel like maybe, uh, maybe you're not good enough to succeed at weight loss or you're not good enough to have the body that you want. And so that's kind of where I like to start the conversations is, you know, what are you going through right now? And, you know, for me, it's a, it's, it's one perspective because I want to be a good role model to my boys. You know, I had a amazing, amazing father who, you know, sadly is no longer in this world. And, and I want my boys to have me for as long as I can. So for me, it's about, it's about being healthy and it's about helping my clients understand, you know, how do we, how do we get you healthier? How do we get you just feeling better? And is it a weight loss thing or do we need to get you lifting heavy or just get you moving? And so it's all of those things that play into it. My God, you know, uh, sleep better because you know how important things like that are. So it's all of those different things that play into it. Now, the other thing I kind of want to get into is that the fact that you've had this huge struggle do you feel like you have the advantage coaching someone who's also struggling? Because like in our industry, a lot of coaches, and I'm not saying they're bad, but um, the coaches that, say, played high-level sports in college, and basically the only reason why they became a trainer is because they didn't make it to the pros like everybody wants to do. And they decide that, okay, well, if I'm not going to be a pro athlete, I can train pro athletes, but they end up just training you know, everyday people. Do you feel like you have an advantage compared to that coach now that you've gone through, you know, this huge struggle in your own life? I don't know if I would call it an advantage. I I guess I just have a different take on it. You know, I when I look at how old I was when I started this business, I was uh, I was 33 years old, you know, and I I didn't go to school for exercise science and I wasn't the stud athlete. In fact, you know, I, I my, my father worked for Goodyear through all of my life, so we were moved around as if I was part of the military. I mean, every three or four years, I'd be moving around. So it, I know what it's like to be somewhere and not fit in, and I know what it's like to be somewhere and not feel like I'm somewhere where I can be appreciated. And that's not to say that I didn't have great friendships because I did, but you know, this was pre-Facebook days and this was pre-AOL days. You know, I'm really going to age myself with that one, but you know, th- this was if I wanted to keep a friend that I'm, you know, that I knew when I was eight years old, it was, they were going to be my pen pal. And it made it a little bit tougher to move from like someplace like Oklahoma to Ohio and keep friendships. So when people come here, I want anyone to feel accepted. I don't care if you're gay or straight. I don't care if you have 150 pounds to lose or five pounds to lose. I don't care if you're man, woman, young, old. I just want you to come to a place where you feel like there's a community here that wants you to be successful. And I think, you know, the downside is I don't know what it's like to lose 50 pounds, but I've trained enough people to see that process happen that I think I've got a little bit of insight. But, you know, I just want to give people hope. And I don't want any unrealistic um, ideas to happen. So before anyone ever pays me a dime, I'm just talking to them about what is the reality of weight loss and what things are you going to have to sacrifice to make those things happen. And I've seen amazing things happen for people because they've lost weight. But there's also kind of a dark side of it, too, is, you know, sometimes the weight that people lose or, or whatever 
the price they pay for that, you know, what it does to their social life or what it may do to um, uh, uh, separate them from their loved ones because they become so focused on themselves, you know, people don't always talk about that stuff. They just see that end goal. So I try to consider all those things. So I, I guess it helps that I'm a little bit older and, you know, I'm not, you know, fresh out of college or any of those things. So I, I think it's just a different perspective. I don't know that I have a better one. No, that makes sense. And I think, I don't know, like, I think it's a double-edged sword because I've seen that coach that I described where, you know, they've been athletic their whole life, but they have a really good sense of understanding people. And I think it comes down to the individual and, like, you know, like you said, you like to buy a bunch of books off Amazon and get addicted on that, and that's a lot of personal development, and I think that's what coaches should be doing and not just, you know, have this idea in their head that they kind of know everything and it's my way or no way, but uh, that's a whole different tangent that I'm getting on. Um, I kind of want to get into when you first started your gym, and I think you said 2008, or was it 2009? Uh, yeah, two, 2009, yep. Okay. Yep. So, like, that was a pretty fast transition from when you got certified and then went, okay, I'm going to go open up my gym and see what happens. So, I'm kind of curious, what were some of the bumps in the road when you first opened and were like, shit, I need clients. How do I do this? Oh, man. We we could do a whole episode (laughs) off of just this because I'm honestly, I am the poster child for everything that you shouldn't do when you start a business. (laughs) Um, I... Okay, so when I first got certified, I was working at a large gym in South Carolina, and South Carolina was where my my son Jackson was born, and I was there after, let let me think about this timeline for a second. I got certified, and I want to say three or four weeks after I got certified, I tore my rotator cuff. So I literally couldn't take any clients because there was nothing that I could do for them. So I had to go through about six months of PT just to get myself, you know, back in a place where I could, you know, do a a lat raise or anything like that because my my shoulder was just a mess. And um, when when I left South Carolina and moved back to Ohio, um, my mother had started working with a personal trainer in the area and I saw his facility and it was in the bottom floor of an office complex. And you had like a little key card where you could get in, it had 24 hour access and he didn't have more than 800 square feet, but he had some nice equipment, he had a great clientele and I thought, wow, like this is really, really cool. I like the feel of this, I like the dynamic of the clientele and I thought, this would be kind of cool to do this. And I actually talked to that guy about taking over his business, but the numbers didn't really make sense. So when I had that situation happen where I, I my grandfather and my uncle on my mom's side of the family had passed away, there was this rental property that was in the family. And my grandmother said, I'm, I'm, I'm either going to sell it or I'm going to give it to someone in the family to do something with it, but I don't want it. And I thought, well, I'll take it. And maybe I'll open up, you know, this little fitness idea that I've got, I'll do it in my hometown in Tennessee, which would have been a terrible idea, by the way. But you know, the way that, you know, life tends to go and ebb and flow the way it does, it was more advantageous to open up the business in Ohio so I could be closer to Jackson. And so that's that's what I did. So as I mentioned, I, I bought all the equipment that I needed. I found a little space that was just shy of a thousand square feet where I could open up. 
And I didn't know anybody in the town that I opened up in. I just opened up in a town where it seemed like there was maybe a little bit more money there. And I thought, okay, well, the, the economy is down and I need to really, you know, do something with this. So I just, I hit the pavement. You know, I, I introduced myself to as many people as I could. I tried to give away free sessions. I tried to give away discount packages. I priced myself as the, the literally the most cost-effective personal training solution in the area, and it did work. And then as demand started to kind of build, um, I was able to raise my prices, you know, along the way. But, you know, one of the things that was really helpful for me was I got uh, involved with a, a networking group with, um, you know, it was a, an organization where, let's say, there was a realtor and a, an attorney and a mortgage guy and a personal trainer, and we were all there just to refer business to one another. And I got involved in one of those, and it opened me up to another foundation of people um, where those referrals could then spread. And that was really good for me. So that's kind of where it started. But, you know, it's it's uh, it kind of goes back to the adage of the bigger the dog, the more the fleas. Um, now I have a space that's 3,000 square feet. Uh, we just moved here, what, four months ago. It's amazing. And um, and the hustle never stops. You know what I mean? I feel like uh, in a lot of ways I have to work harder now than I ever did before. But that's you know that's kind of the joys of business ownership. But there were there were a lot of bumps along the way. It's uh, it, it definitely has not been an easy journey. <laughs> yeah, and I think like you did the smart thing because a lot of coaches when they want to open up their facility, they're like, boom, I want like six thousand square feet of space. I'm gonna have this huge turf. I'm gonna have all these squat racks, but you know, the overhead is a lot of money. And if you start small, you can always grow and go to another gym like yours with 3,000 square feet and grow into it. Whereas if you start with 6,000 square feet and you have one person training there twice a week, I don't know how you're going to turn on those lights. That's right. Exactly right. Um, so kind of want to flip the question into a question I got from Facebook. And this person's actually from my gym. And what I find that, you know, over the years, I always tend to kind of get the same questions over and over again. And you would think like by now, like all this great information from the coaches that we know that put out to Facebook, people are still asking the same things. And you're like, I always find myself going back to the basics and coming from like a weight loss perspective, like this question is asking, you know, how do I get more muscle when you start aging? And I think that's kind of like my clientele is like people from 40, 50, 60 that, you know, they've had families, their kids are old enough. Now they can focus on, on themselves. So what's your approach when you're training your clients? Cause it kind of seems like you have general population clients, just like me. What do you advocate the most for them to kind of build muscle, keep it on and keep healthy for the rest of their lives? Yeah, I, I, I would say that for for the for almost anyone um you just have to progress you know and for for that individual who trains with me and and I've got many of those types of people here whether it be male or female if that is the the priority is I want to build and maintain muscle um as I'm as I'm aging you know you need a plan and whether that's uh, you know if you're if you're physically able to do things like the big lifts whether that be trap lift deadlift uh, a squat and uh, say a bench press, you know, that the tend to be the, the bang for the buck exercises, see how you can progress those. 
be very understanding about the fact that you may need a little bit more recovery from those exercises and just keep pushing the needle across the spectrum. Um, don't look to see if you can add 100 pounds to your squat in a year, but if you can, that's amazing. You know, just look and see, can I can I look over, say, a four-week cycle, and did I get stronger? Did I add more reps? Did the weights go up? Um, you know, the, the principles still apply for everybody. It's almost like saying that there's a girl exercise and a guy exercise. There's not. Um, there's just... What, how do you progress in a way that your body recovers well, that you still feel fresh to hit your workouts, and you're seeing, you know, those numbers change over time? And you know, it's like a, it's like looking at your diet, but not actually being aware of what your portions are, or measuring, or things like that. Um, you can guess all you want, but if the body's not changing, then something's not doing what it should be. So, you know, just I, I've got a lot of my people on programs, and uh, and we can look back over them at a four-week cycle and say, okay, well, look, you know, your your bench went up uh, 10 pounds this month. That's amazing. Okay, let's look at the next month. And you just keep finding ways that keep them consistent, keep them engaged, and uh, and keep them moving forward. But I, I I wish I had some really fancy answer, but I don't know that they exist. Uh, but you know, if I guess I would say this as well is, uh, and somebody who I'm I'm certain that you know very well, uh, James Krieger's written a lot about this stuff, and he's done a lot of really great reviews on this where he talks about you know you don't necessarily have to lift heavy. So for those people who are opposed to doing heavy lifts, you can really do a lot with uh, lower weights and higher reps and things like that. And I think it's important because some people, you know, whether we like it or not, they're just intimidated by those big weights. So we have to find other ways to stimulate the muscle. No, that makes a lot of sense. And like, I, I always go back to, like I said earlier, the basics and a lot of people that wanna achieve weight loss, they always think it has to be really complicated. And over the years, you know, I've seen clients when they're really struggling and I'll just ask them like, so how much sleep do you get? They're like, oh, four hours. I'm like, well, let's start there. There's no like magic diet. Maybe we just start with the simple stuff. But I also think people don't understand how actually difficult it is to lose weight and keep it off for the entire life. It's kind of one of those like skill sets. Like I always tell people that, you know, if I told you to pick up a new sport tomorrow you're not going to be good at it right away like you need to practice at it and until you get better it's going to become easier going to do cooler things and it's just a process but i think that's how you know marketers today are telling people that you know in six weeks your entire life will change and you'll lose 20 pounds and everything will be like sunshine and rainbows but yeah, I think uh, people just need to get through their heads. It's a lot harder than they think. Yeah, and just you know, c- commit to the long to the long game. I mean, I um, I don't know how you are, but I mean, I've been injured a few times, and it makes you look at your training plan a little bit differently. And as much as I'd love to say that you know I'm all about the PRs and all that stuff, and you know there are a couple things I look at. There are some things where it's it's more risk than reward. And at the end of the day, you know, it's far more important for me to be able to play with my boys and for me to be able to hold my wife and do my job than it is for me to say, oh, my God, I'm the baddest guy in town at the deadlift. You know what I mean? So I think as long as you're very forgiving about what that process should look like and, you know, they're with a trainer like you who is very trustworthy and you're not some over the top, really aggressive guy, then, you know, the, the sky's the limit. You just have to be mindful of what that looks like, you know, respective to you. 100%. And I think for the second last question, I'm going to ask you, what is your spirit animal and why? 
Oh man, <laughs> yeah. You know, I have I have heard you uh, answer the, or ask this before, and I'm thinking, <laughs> how in the hell would I answer that question? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if I have a good reason why, but I think I've always been fascinated with bald eagles. Nice. And I remember being just younger and seeing them and just being kind of in awe of, you know, just I, I guess for, for no other reason than just the beauty of watching them. Now, I, when was the last time I saw a bald eagle? I couldn't tell you. But if you have to ask me that question, that's probably the best answer I can give you. <laughs> but, you know, what? I, I think a lot of people kind of lean towards birds in some shape or form because their ability to fly. Like that's because I've asked this a couple times and even people that I like train or me they always go to some form of form of like speed or flight and i think there's like something to it but i haven't figured out what that is <laughs> when you find that out you got to let me know <laughs> yeah uh so now very last question where can people find you online what projects do you have coming out or anything else you want to plug away you can right now Okay, so I believe that I am the only Jason Lenarts on the planet, and uh, you and I both have some wicked last names, so yeah. I'll spell mine out. It's L-E-E-N-A-A-R-T-S, so you can find me at jasonleanarts.com. You are welcome to check out my podcast, Revolutionary You, which, as of the recording of this particular episode, you and I have also recorded a yeah. show together where I get to flip the tables on you and have you as the guest, so our show is coming out a week from basically a week from the date of this recording. So that's going to be pretty great. And, um, and yeah, if you're, you know, you're floating around on, on Amazon, you're welcome to pick up my book called the revolution is you. Uh, it's nothing fancy. I, I call it good toilet literature because you can read it pretty quickly and it's not over anybody's head. And, um, you know, if you want to connect with me on Facebook, uh, be forewarned that I post lots of pictures of my clients doing great things and I do everything I can not to post anything negative. It's all about things that are positive. So if you want to see pictures of my boys and my wife and my clients, feel free to connect. I'm happy to, to chat with anybody. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Awesome. Well, I hope I didn't bring anybody down too much with all the stuff at the beginning. But, you know, it's uh, I, I guess if I could leave any any parting shot is I don't want to say something super woo and go, if I can do it, you can do it. But I will say this, no matter how dark your life is, there is a light somewhere. You you do have to want it. You do have to search for it. Sometimes you have to kick and scream and crawl to get there. But I can absolutely promise you that when you get there, it is 100% worth it. And uh, and don't don't stop fighting. Okay, boys and girls, episode 118 has come to a close. Hopefully you enjoyed that one with Jason as he's just an amazing individual and human being. And I would definitely check out his podcast because he is really good at what he does. And I even told him when he interviewed me that I'm like, dude, fuck, you are awesome at this. I feel like I'm an amateur at this whole podcasting thing. But anyway... Uh, last thing, share this podcast with everyone you know, your friends, your family, your mom, your dad. Share this shit on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, whatever the hell you're on. And also be sure to click the show notes in this episode to sign up for the Cut the Shit, Get Fit newsletter where I send awesome stuff every single week. Hit that up, put your email in, and I will continue giving you amazing content week in, week out, and that's it for me.